Souvenirs is the third full-length album by Shenandoah Davis, these days based in Seattle, Washington, whose tour in support of it has brought her back to New Zealand this week. Incidentally, also her third visit uh, to these shores. As she plays in Dunedin tomorrow night at Dog With Two Tails and joins us on uh, the program. Good morning and welcome back. Good morning, thank you. I broke off your record player's needle. Is that the ultimate hipster emasculation metaphor or what? <laughs> um, I've had a lot of people ask me about that line. It is a, yeah, I think that it is kind of a, yeah, the ultimate m- millennial um, screw you in any uh, dating relationship a little bit. <laughs> You came to writing in songs and playing in bands uh, in a fairly circuitous way, um, learning the piano and, and training classically uh, through the opera world, uh, and and then uh, the kind of work uh, that keeps bringing you back here uh, to New Zealand. The opera world can be notoriously unforgiving. Were you just not mean enough? Um, I just, you know, I got a little bit... I got kind of a peek behind the scenes while I was studying opera in school. Um, and I just ultimately, I mean, I've always loved music, but I wasn't passionate enough about opera to feel like I was really going to be able to um, compete with other opera singers who were more passionate about it. Like, it's just, it's such a hard, competitive um, field, and it's kind of a dying art form as well. Um, and so I after some reflection, decided to just kind of get out of the way and um, focus on something that would be a little bit more creative for me. Yeah, there are, there are a few of those disciplines, eh? I mean, same as, uh, well, I guess, classical musicians or ballerinas or opera singers. There's not a whole lot of space for second-tier uh, sopranos, you know what I mean? Like, if, if you're not going to make it yeah, at the I- Met, where else do you go? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But I find curious... It's just all... No, go on. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, you go. I was just saying, um, yeah, all of those, I think across the world, but especially in the States where we used to have quite a bit of funding for the arts and for specifically, um, you know, opera and ballet. Um, it's just kind of all all boom-boom music now. Um, and even the new operas and ballets that are getting funding to produce are kind of more based around electronic music to try to kind of appeal to a younger audience that I think is just kind of never going to get it the way that someone who was growing up in the 30s or 40s or 50s um, just kind of grew up with it, immersed in their culture. Do you think your classical music training is a blessing or a curse when it comes to writing pop songs? There's a lot to be said for constraints (laughs) and, and... uh, you know, punk music is obviously the the prime example. When you can only play three chords, your options are fairly limited in terms of what you want to write and record. Um, but when you can write and record mm-hmm. a whole lot more than that, I mean, it can become potentially endless, um, the rabbit hole you go down, which I guess could be somewhat frustrating in some ways. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's definitely a blessing and a curse. Um, one way that I've kind of gotten around that just because the you know the piano is my main instrument and it's so dynamic and it does have kind of limitless possibilities um, is that I actually will start 
writing most songs on the guitar, um, which I'm just not very good at. And so I've sort of set that up as a way to limit myself, at least at the beginning of writing a song where I really only have six or seven chords to choose from. Um, and then after I have kind of the nuts and bolts of the song, I'll move it over to the piano and make things a little more flowery. Yeah, right. And then again, when you go into uh, production, it's a whole another level again. I mean, the scale of, of production, particularly on, on the new record, isn't one that necessarily lends itself to touring or performance. So are you writing songs with those two modes in mind, or perhaps is it that the recordings are dressed-up versions of the songs more than the shows being dressed-down versions of the songs? Hmm. That's a great question. Um, well, I think I always just try to think of the recording process and the live process as kind of two completely separate fields. Um, you know, I don't want to limit the recordings that I'm making with the like budgetary restrictions of how many people I'm going to be able to take on tour, especially when I'm coming to places like New Zealand. <laughs> um, but I did, you know, I wanted to make a big, grandiose kind of Phil Spector-ish pop record. Um, but then also with the folks that I've brought with me to New Zealand, I have um, a guitarist and drummer who kind of switches back and forth named Ian. And then um, my sister, Eleni, who plays viol who switches off between viola and synth. Um, and so we've already gotten feedback at some of the shows that they were they were expecting kind of a more like MTV unplugged <laughs> that, um, that acoustic version of the song. Um, but for just having three people, we really can make quite a lot of noise. Um, and that's something that folks at the shows we've already played were have really been commenting on. <laughs> I want to talk about that. <laughs> you, you mentioned Phil Spector. What I find curious about some of the responses to the record is that people can be both A, drawn to comparing it with the 60s girl group era, and B, somehow also surprised that songs about broken hearts can sound so upbeat and positive. Um, that, that, because that tension between the syrupy orchestration and sad, even violent subject matter is one of the single greatest things, I think, about that genre, which is compounded, of course, by the fact that Phil Spector himself was a monster of a human being. Um, you know, why, right. write, why, why write sad songs that sound sad when you can make sad songs uh, sound more uh, ambiguous? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that um, you know, especially as a as a like woman who plays piano and you know uh, tends to get the adjective pretty used for my music a lot, or at least before this record I did, people would say, "Oh, that song is really pretty." Um, and I it got to the point where I wasn't really taking it as a compliment anymore. Um, that's was, very you know, that's very patient kind of, of you in... to have waited that long. <laughs> um, you know, yeah. So I was interested. Uh, I was interested in making an album that was a little bit less pretty. It definitely still has some moments on it, but, um, you know, last year, as I was making the record, I was um, also going through a divorce, and I wasn't finding a lot of music that was, like, necessarily comforting for me or really accurately kind of describing, uh, like, my emotional spectrum or how I was feeling about things. Um, you know, love songs can often just fall into the category of this is a happy love song about being in love or this is a sad love song about being in love with someone who doesn't love you back. And I've, I just felt like, you know, considering how many songs there are about 
relationships and love, there were really not very many that kind of strayed from those two kind of main tenets of pop music. Um, And so I was interested in trying to tell some stories that were um, a little bit more complicated. Yeah, and and so you have, you know, and it it seems obvious when you think about it, um, you know, why wouldn't there be songs about the liberation of no longer being in a relationship, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And I was I was listening to a lot of Dusty Springfield, um, who I just absolutely love, um, and, and Leslie Gore. And so I have been getting, you know, especially with the song Orbit, that is kind of a, like a triumphant yeah. breakup song. Um, it's just like, you know, I'm finally, I'm finally out of here. Um, yeah, I, you know, is, you know, a little bit, I feel like it's empowering for me to sing. I love performing that song. Um, because it's not, you know, as soul-crushing as one of these just, you know, sad, one of these sad, sad women singer-songwriter songs that everyone, you know, there's certainly a place for them, and I've certainly written a lot of them. Um, but as a as a performer, singing a song like that just feels a lot more honest to me. Um, I'm interested in your um, in your interest in the DIY ethic. Um, an and approach and something that you've uh, written about yourself. Is it born out of philosophy or necessity or both, that interest? Um, for me, I, I would say both, um, but it definitely started out as a necessity. Um, and the states were really just overwhelmed with... Um, way way too many bands and musicians who are trying to make a living as professional artists Um, and especially with streaming music the way that musicians can make money has really been drastically affected Um, and so every you know as someone starting out you kind of get inundated with emails from people who you know might not even be real people saying oh hire me to do your press hire me to be your booking agent hire me to build you a website and for me um, you know, starting out in the singer-songwriter world, at like a 21-year-old who was working at a coffee shop and just had no money, it was really important for me to learn how to sort of do all of the jobs that happen on the back end of being a musician before I was going to be ready to hire someone to do them because if I wasn't exactly sure how to do their job, I would have no way of judging whether or not they were doing a good job. Um, and there are unfortunately just a lot of people trying to do that as a living who aren't very good at it. <laughs> I say, you know, I, I say that, you know, it's, it's a very difficult job. I really respect that. But um, I know early on I had hired someone to do a press campaign and paid them like $1,500, which was a lot of money to me at the time. And then I just sort of saw nothing from it. Um, anyone was asking them sort of what they had done and they were just like oh no we well we did it but um yeah we just didn't get any press and I was like oh can you prove it and they and they just sort of couldn't um and I feel like a lot of young musicians you know are trying to find some kind of shortcut to just get their music in front of more people and these options come along that are very tempting but I do think that it's important to learn how to do it yourself and then once it gets to a level where you you know, it's taking too much time away from your own creative process and the other parts of being a musician that you are passionate about. Um, 
then you can shop it off to someone else. Just lastly, and I can't help but ask this, um, you've played <laughs> at Folsom Prison, which has survived funding cuts to supporting to support visiting artists largely because it was made famous by Johnny Cash recording an album there. Is it possible to play mm-hmm. there without thinking about that? about Without being under the shadow of that record, do you think? Um, I definitely think that it is. Um, you know, it's really not... Um, it's definitely not as glamorous a performance opportunity as the Johnny Cash record was. Um... You know, the inmates of the prison are, you know, they're certainly aware of the of that album, but I don't think that when I've gone there to play shows, anyone is expecting a kind of Johnny Cash level of performance coming out of it. Um, but the shows there are in much smaller settings. They're usually less than 20 inmates in a room at once, and so you'll go in for a day and perform in three or four different rooms that are all just very small groups. Um, and it ends up being a lot more conversational than, you know, a typical show at a bar at an art gallery um, where people will just kind of pipe up when you're done playing a song and ask you what a certain line meant or comment on a particular part of the song that they enjoyed. Was that expected or not going into that? Because, I mean, that's quite a... Quite a, you know, could be a quite a demanding experience for an artist being in that situation. Um, it was. I've been there um, three different times, and the first time it was definitely. Um, I was definitely not going into it expecting what ended up happening, um, and it was, you know, it is a very demanding situation, and it can be kind of emotionally. Mm. Draining, especially, I mean, as a musician playing three or four sets of music and like shuffling all your gear in between different rooms in between, that's already kind of a long day for a musician. Um, you know, and then when you add in that everyone who's just seen you perform knows that they're going to be spending the rest of their lives in prison, that kind of adds an extra weight to it, certainly. Um, but it has, it's been a really powerful experience and I always, um, when I'm taking out people who haven't been on tour with me before, um, always try to stop there and share that experience with them whenever it's possible. Shannon Doyle Davis, uh, an absolute pleasure to have you on uh, the program this morning, playing tomorrow night at uh, Dog With Two Tales here. Uh, here in Dunedin. I'm going to play uh, the opening track from your album. It's called uh, The Wings. What can you tell us about this? Yeah, The Wings is a is a song that definitely came from doing so much touring um, and kind of trying to sustain some kind of normal ro- romantic relationship um, in between, you know, being home for two weeks and then gone for three months and home for two weeks um and so the you know the kind of very obtuse interpretation of the lyrics is like i'm like i'm leaving again and i hope that you will wait for me to come back but i don't realistically expect you to shannon Noah davis an absolute pleasure to have you on the program this is the wings you're on the haraway's oat singles breakfast on radio one 91 fm
I'm a 